The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Our Wild World. As societies in general, across the world, the general public is more aware of the human-animal connection and of the crises our non-human neighbors are facing, from the onslaught to our, of our wildlife and what it faces through their exploitation as raw and living resources, to keeping them live in captivity. What we are seeing is a transformative wave of rewilding our internal landscape, our mindsets, and knowing that this exploitation is also harming us. That compassion and coexistence from the human element is the core to reshaping our relationship with our animal neighbors, not just as pets, but also from the perspective of science, psychology, and sociology. And that is the Denver Institute for Animal Human. Co- I'm sorry. That is the Denver Institute for Human Animal Connection helps to create and forge this transformative process through studies that prepare their graduate students to their staff for the real world interactions and benefits we can reap from healthy relationships with anim- animals. My guest today, Philip Tedeschi, clinical professor and executive director of the Denver Institute for Animal Connection. Human Animal Connection, I'm sorry, that's going to catch me every time, has brought international attention to therapeutic and social forms of animal-assisted social work, forensic social work, and into the realm of evaluation and treatment of animal cruelty offenders and sexual offenders, both through the legal and social justice environments. And this is accomplished through experiential therapy and eco-social work. So do please tune in to our previous episodes with Philip and his colleague uh, Jim Pyle and uh, get an understanding of the beginnings of where this began and what IHAC is. So today we're just going to move forward and uh, converse on some of the big changes that have uh, been taking place at the Denver Institute for Human-Animal Connection and how it's grown tremendously on both the local and international level. So welcome, Philip. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's always nice to be back. It's always a pleasure talking with you and because this is a whole different side of wildlife, human, and animal connection than I typically deal with on our wild world. I try to highlight that our environment, our world, is in definite need of a transformation of our perspective and how we live on this planet. So um, 
What I'd, I'd like to get from you today and help us understand is to give us some of the updates and the resources that we, the public, our listeners, can gain further understanding of just how foundational to our lives and well-being, and therefore to our non-human neighbors, the connection with animals is. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's so it's you know it's wonderful to be back, and I think uh, you know your show always illuminates the important topics of how people interact with the living world around them. And our institute at the University of Denver, and we're housed right in the Graduate School of Social Work, we're interested really in almost every aspect of how people interact with uh, the living world around them. And um, we've been we've been busy since we talked last, and we have some important and interesting events coming up that I'd, I'd love to tell you about. Well, let's start with some of that. In uh, our, our recent little discussion in preparing for our, our conversation today, you had mentioned some of the uh, new initiatives that you're involved in. And one of them that struck my mind and my, my piqued my interest is green care, uh, the significance of living with living systems. Tell us about that. Well, you know, green care is a term that has been around for some time, but it's kind of found some new popularity. And I think part of the reason that that term has caught on is that we've been trying to find the right terminology to talk about a number of concepts that are both distinct from one another, but in many ways relate to one another at the same time. So really, the you know, when we try to define this term or this concept of green care, what we're really talking about there is this concept that there is a need for uh, contact with the living world that people need in order to optimize their personal health and, and well-being. So in many cases, green care is referring to um, a number of distinct areas. Often we'll talk about things like social and therapeutic use of uh, horticulture or gardening, uh, much of our work at the University of Denver that focuses on animal-assisted interventions, which is really the role that animals can play in uh, clinical and therapeutic environments, uh, what we call care farming, uh, it falls under that category. In many cases, we talk about the concepts like ecological therapy or even nature-based therapies might fall into that. Uh, and then the broader array of contact with um, our natural world, which also would include, uh, you know, conservation work, uh, conservation psychology, really recognition that uh, we have a richer and more beautiful, um, you know, and, 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 you know, improved quality of life when we're in contact with healthy living systems. So what's really been exciting is that, you know, these, although these have, you know, been interest to many different sectors of our, of our academic and uh, kind of working world, what we now are finding is that these are real measures of human health, and the Institute has been focusing on that. Well, you brought up an interesting concept as, you know, our mind shifts and our interior landscapes, as I call it, are shifting. We're finding, especially since 2012 through, let's say, 2015, a very big energy shift and a need to reconnect with nature and compassion. And often the question is, okay, I'm willing to do that, but I'm not sure how. So a lot of what you're talking about here is not only that we do need to do it, that it will improve our personal health, which will therefore translate into a better world, but you're giving us 
real world, real life ways to accomplish this. Mm -hmm. So um, this also seems to include the, um, as I started to say, as we grow these concepts, we do need to come up with new language to encompass them. If you don't have a way to talk about it, then it's very difficult to engage that mental landscape and, and conceptual understanding. So this is also bringing us into another um, new term, but old system called One Health. Mm -hmm. And um, I recently had a conversation with UC Davis that is um, working on the conservation and wildlife medicine side that is also geared toward One Health. And the author, um, Barbara uh, Horowitz Natterson, I believe her name is, Zubiquity, and bringing human and animals back into a one being kind of thing as opposed to separate. So tell us a little bit about how One Health works in in terms of what the Denver Institute for Human Animal Connection is doing and and the courses that you offer and the presentations that you put out there. Yeah, well, you know, One Health is a a term that um, for many has been really almost entirely devoted to the scientific uh, examination of how people and animals related and in many cases even very specific things like disease transmission and and the way uh, you know things like uh, potential pandemics get trans- transmitted across across the world so we might even think of things like the Ebola virus and management of of those kinds of, of health challenges as elements of one health you took the but, words right out of my mouth as we um, go into uh, expanding unexplored previously untrammeled wild places we are opening a Pandora's box and we're going to have to find a way to deal with that well that's right and you know and I think what's also happening now is there's kind of a, a bit of a wrestling match for the term one health and what does it actually include and what might be the limits in our in our area of social sciences, our program happens to be in a school of social work. So we look at it through the lens of uh, elements of things like ecological and social justice and some of the ways in which uh, human beings are um, both challenged and benefited from uh, being around a healthy environment. So, you know, we believe that um, the evidence is starting to show that healthy ecological systems is one of the necessary uh, protective factors for communities around the world. And that as we start to advocate for well-being of people, we can't really do that without, without simultaneously advocating for the well-being of animals and healthy environments. Absolutely. So as we've been saying so many centuries, you know, it is an interconnected web. What we do to the web, we do to ourselves. So tell us some of the actual processes that you and your students and your staff uh, go through in terms of not only classes, but in preparing uh, your graduates and your staff for real world encounters. Well, one of the courses that that I teach personally every year is, uh, and we teach this in East Africa, in Kenya. One of the, you know, one of the probably most rich um, biodiversity environments really anywhere in the world. And what we do with students on that particular course, it's it's considered a One Health course, although we refer to it as social work in Kenya. Um, the focus really starts out with an examination and observation of deep poverty that we might find in a setting like uh, a slum like Kibera, Kenya, which is found right in the heart of Nairobi, Kenya. 
And when students um, have been exposed to, to that type of deep poverty, you know, one of the first questions that we're interested in is how do these unplanned communities uh, happen? How, how, you know, what is the causes or the origins of, of these? If we follow kind of the stream up to the headwaters of it, where does it start? And what they find is that many of the individuals who end up in the slums of Kybera are moving there for economic purposes, but the reason they're originally displaced and moved is often related to things like climate change and degradation of their own home environments. In many cases, we can even trace this down to very specific activities, things like poaching of, of animals, things like deforestation, the production of charcoal, for example, removes the natural environment that the animals are living in. And then over time, what we start to see are things like desertification and the redu reduction of the quality of soil. And it's harder to produce, uh, you know, necessary food sources and those sorts of things. So we find people often moving into those uh, urban settings, looking for a way to make a living as a feature of the fact that they no longer can do it in their own, in their own original homes. And a lot of that has to do with a shift over, I'm going to say, the previous 50 years of conservation uh, to even 20 years ago of bringing in expertise and moving people instead of practicing holistic land management, holistic livestock management, and responding in our human economic ways and livestock and food production the way wild uh, populations do. They move. So what we're seeing and what you're talking about is there's a massive um, migration of people uh, from these previously living systems that are being decimated and now decimating urban centers and creating deep poverty, as you talk about. So mm -hmm. what are some of the programs that you do there and, and expose your students to? Well, you know, after uh, having a close, you know, opportunity to understand those communities and some of the challenges, uh, we, we start to look at what are some of the opportunities and some of the solutions. So, uh, you know, one of the elements of the program allows students then to begin to understand the uh, interconnection between that deep poverty and those rural communities. So, for example, one of the activities that we engage in with those communities is an opportunity to, to study the health of wildlife uh, and, and the biodiversity in occurring in, uh, in and around um, uh, Kenya. And particularly, we're working in areas that surround the national parks. So one of the things that is occurring as people are engaged in struggles for, you know, livelihoods is that they're, uh, and, and, and by the way, I, I will mention that, you know, one of the big pressures is, is population growth, that we're seeing tremendous population growth in and across Africa. East Africa in particular has had uh, grown substantially in terms of its overall population, and that's a contributing problem. So what we start to uh, study then is how uh, the impact of these, um, you know, of these various social pressures, poverty and lack of economic, uh, you know, viable uh, jobs and, and forms of, of livelihood uh, start to then contribute to things like the development of these unplanned communities and then ultimately other uh, cascading risk factors, including 
um, the uh, poaching of animals in an illegal wildlife uh, trade. So in many cases, we're seeing this in the form of, of snares that are set up for the purposes of catching animals that are sold then into the bushmeat um, markets of, of East Africa. And those are implicated as direct challenges for public health that bushmeat uh, often contributes to serious health hazards for those communities. And we also now are starting to see really the crash of um, many of the species that are living there as a result of, you know, consumptive use of wildlife. And, you know, you mentioned a, an interesting term. Biodiversity is a word that is bandied about a lot. And we seem to think it often as separate from us, that it is something else out there. With And what you just said is just how much um, our overpopulation and this these unplanned dense communities are affecting biodiversity and not just of wildlife and landscapes but of our own ability to be a diverse species mm-hmm. so um in terms of that i'm just going to take a quick well actually we're about out of time here for the the first section so why don't we take a quick little break and then i'd like to come back and get into more of some of the actual projects that you're doing and uh what the students learn, you know, not only do the people in Africa get a tremendous takeaway, but I think the takeaway is what we learn from participating in other cultures. So stick with us. My guest is Philip Tedeschi, and we're um, with the Denver Institute of Human Animal Connection, and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, parent, child, sibling, friend, neighbor, or even co-worker. You are there to provide the care that these people need after everyone else has gone home. Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley will provide you with a social networking experience. You'll hear from experts and others who are experiencing the same things, and together you will promote a common cause. Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Adoption changes a family forever. 
for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial, and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back with my guest, Philip Tedeschi. And we've been talking about some of the work in the real world that the Denver Institute for Human-Animal Connection is uh, performing elsewhere and finding just how deeply and involving and encompassing this human-animal connection is. So before the break, we were talking about some of the work that you're doing in Kenya in specific, specifically and connecting deep poverty to conservation. So um, we talked about green care and One Health. How is IHAC, the Institute, um, what are some of the actual projects and programs and how could people get involved that you're doing in East Africa? Well, you know, we're, we have a course in East Africa, and we certainly, um, you know, love to learn with that community, and we've developed close collaborations with partners there. Um, so really, I think in one, one of the things that people could do, listeners that are interested in these topics, is participate in some of the learning opportunities that the Institute is hosting. Um, you know, one of the things that we have been studying in, and is really one of the most urgent issues facing, uh, you know, facing wildlife in East Africa is the uh, poaching elephants for ivory. And ivory, as well as uh, rhino horn, has now, uh, you know, peaked in its, um, you know, really almost peaked in its its value to the point where it now is being, um, you know, uh, viewed Deci- as, yeah, as... It's decimating the populations beyond viable population ability to reproduce. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it's really a critical issue and partially because there's, it's just so uh, considered so valuable now in some of those communities. And so, uh, so we would, um, you know, like to invite anybody who's interested to join us for an event that is coming up at the university. And that's going to actually be held on April um, uh, 8th coming up just in in a very short period of time as uh, what is that next week i next guess week. uh and it's held from six to eight o'clock uh and you can find information about it specifically off of our institute website at the institute for human animal connection and uh there is a rsvp so you're you're welcome to join in that that is a, a fundraiser for an organization that we've collaborated with called the David Sheldrick Trust. And the David Sheldrick Trust works specifically at 
um, the rehabilitation and protection of orphaned elephants that have uh, been brought in. Uh, and in most cases, they're orphans as a feature of poaching activity that's going on. In some cases, it's, it's other health-related issues. Um, but in most cases, it's human wildlife conflict. And what we're going to be doing at that, uh, at that event is screening a film that highlights the work of the Dave Rustin and having a conversation about the most practical and immediate ways that people interested in elephant conservation can be involved. That's great. And Dame Daphne Sheldrick is not only a close friend, but she's an amazing woman. She's got so much expertise in what she's accomplished through the the elephant orphanage there, which has branched out further down into Savo, where the Mm -hmm. orphans go. And the important thing to note here is that the orphans don't stay here. This is not a sanctuary in the traditional sense. It is a rewilding uh, organization. The whole point Mm -hmm. is is to get these elephants back into the wild and uh, reproducing and being elephants, learning how to be elephants. So they are an amazing organization, and I would suggest anybody... Uh, to join in to this event. And I have posted the invitation on my Facebook page. And once again, please do visit the Denver Institute for Human-Animal Connection website and you'll learn so much more about what they're doing. So um, one of the things about poaching that I I do need to uh, reiterate is that poachers often don't have another opportunity. They don't have a choice other than to accept this immediate um, availability of cash, um, an inflow that they they feel will change their benchmark of health and wealth. And I guess what you're trying to do is that this financial definition of health and wealth must also change as we transform our connection to wildness, the wild world, and animals. So tell us a little bit more of what the students come away from. We all know how Africa can benefit from our participation and helping them access and um, gain uh, better understanding and tools for doing what they need to do. But a big side of what happens is the transformation that happens to us Mm -hmm. um, having visited there. Can you tell us some of those experiences? Well, I think one of you know one of the big outcomes for students who are participating in the programs at the university uh, is that they're starting to really examine the question around you know really uh, almost through the lens of what we might consider both what are our risks, the primary risks to human health, and what are the resiliency factors? What are the things that allow for uh, high quality, you know, of human life? And as social work practitioners, as they're training for that, one of the things that's becoming very clear is that as we start to kind of map the influence of healthy nature or healthy ecological systems and its role in the care, and in some cases, therapeutic intervention with people, is that we're finding that it's a critical aspect of human health. And that we, you know, we can define as both green care and we can also define that as one health. So an example that we might see just simply, you know, right here in Colorado would be we start to see also the same kinds of things of what's the difference between a planned community, one that incorporates uh, coexistence and careful appreciation 
our interaction with uh, nature in a healthy environment versus the communities that have done that more carelessly. And then what happens not only to the animals and the ecological systems around it, but what is, what's the human experience in that as well? And so, you know, these are issues that are uh, are global in nature. They're they're local, but they're also issues that every single community needs to take interest in because they have immediate impacts on well-being of um, our you know immediate communities, our families, you know, our children in many cases. Um, and those are the issues that I think students come away uh, from these courses with is a, a new understanding that there is an interconnection. We may be a little bit more distant from it or, or in some ways protected from those issues as a feature of affluence, you know, or in some cases, um, you know, simply the fact that we haven't even asked those questions ourselves, but they're happening in our own backyard. As well. I, I can't help but mention that you might enjoy having a conversation with Dr. John Hadidian of the Humane Society of the U.S., um, his speciality is planned communities and incorporating green spaces, knowing that wildlife will be a part of that community and helping people understand how to deal with those kinds of conflicts, the raccoon in your yard, the deer, the mountain lion, and, mm -hmm. and dealing with that. So just putting it out there, we did a great show with uh, John Hadidian on urban wildlife conflict and the issues of feral cats. And, you know, this once again pulls pull it together our love of animals but also the conflicts and the problems that we can create with that love if we don't um, sort of take into consideration all the social aspects that you're dealing with so that sort of segues into um, a perfect segue into some of the initiatives that you're doing and how this connects animal cruelty and specific animal welfare and social work um, I think this is a perfect tie-in talk to us a little bit about that well, it is it is a, a good tie, and in fact, uh, Ellie, I will tell you that uh, our students just this spring quarter will be studying human-animal conflict issues with HSUS uh, and the uh, prairie dog, um, you know, challenges and and you know, if you will, the uh, you know debates around what how to how to best coexist with prairie dogs. Also, looking at human coyote and human bat. Uh, uh, interactions this just this quarter. So, you know, one somebody might ask, well, what is the social worker's interest in understanding, you know, how we might uh, and and why we might value a, a healthy bat populations? Um, well, you know, there are real interests and real issues uh, placed, you know, right in front of us as social work practitioners because we're interested in things like public health, and public health become, you know pretty critical when you start to look at, for example, transmission of diseases as a feature of, you know, um, uh, declining bat populations. And then we start to see an increase in things like mosquitoes, right? And mosquitoes can transmit diseases. So these are issues that in many cases aren't a problem until they affect us immediately. But our students are learning about those as we speak. So so our institute takes um, a view that that one of the missing stories in the work of conservation and human-animal interaction is the human social scientist who understands the human side of it. So one of our uh, signature programs at the institute is the Colorado Link Project, which studies 
um, and does direct intervention in animal cruelty, but really looks at it through the lens of what's causing those kinds of problems. So as we started to learn more about it, uh, one of the new programs at the university is uh, the opportunity for the courts in Colorado to refer somebody convicted of animal cruelty for a specialized evaluation that allows them to understand the reasons why that person was engaging in a cruel behavior towards an animal and be provided what's very, you know, almost a, a psychological evaluation, but with specialized understanding of the animal abuse uh, components of that evaluation. So that's something that we're doing actively right now for the courts. And that's a huge shift also that's been taking place over the last decade or so in that uh, coordinating and collaborating with law enforcement and giving law enforcement the ability and the knowledge and um, from the social work side, the human side, and the animal protection and uh, conservation side to um, bridge these areas. So as you're saying, from the offender, the animal cruelty person, to um, how that affects other aspects of cruelty in that person's life, from sexual offenders to um, passing it down through generations and uh, physical abuse, and how animals... Uh, can change that therapeutic assistance and how the courts and the legal system really does need to get on board with this connection. Yep. So that's, um, exa- that's exactly right. You know, as, as you talked about that, one of the things that might interest uh, people who are, you know, animal advocates is that we've now determined that there are at a minimum about 13 different in what we call typologies or taxonomies of individuals engaging in animal cruelty that are very distinct from one another. So if we want to be effective at, um, you know, intervening on behalf of animal welfare, one of the things that we really need are people who are interested in the human psychological variables that cause these types of behaviors. So, you know, for example, the person who's collecting animals Um, you know, what we might call the traditional animal hoarder, is very distinct from the person who's engaging in, you know, uh, let's say a physically cruel behavior um, and is being driven by a more antisocial set of uh, variables that are causing that behavior. And their intervention plan needs to look very different. So part of our work has been to try to really understand the human side of what's going on behind these situations. Well, it's fabulous. You know, it's it's amazing and I for one am personally energized that there is an institute for human animal connection and that there are so many incredible people like you and your colleagues that are coming at this from new angles, new perspectives and bringing it to global attention because it all ties together. So this leads me into some of the new research activities that you're involved in. And mm-hmm. you, you touched on that just a minute ago. What are some of the other uh, areas that you're involved in? Well, one of the most, uh, the most, literally, uh, you know, kind of um, immediate uh, interest that we have is looking at um, the impact of um, therapeutic green care programs on correctional, in in correctional environments. So we work closely with uh, a program here in Colorado that utilizes um, and uh, brings dogs out of 
shelter environments and works with um, has the uh, inmate population work at helping socialize and retrain and replace those dogs in communities. Many of those dogs are now being placed with our students who are becoming therapists in the community. So one of the areas that we're looking at from our research uh, standpoint is, you know, how do those kinds of programs that give uh, somebody in um, in the criminal justice system an opportunity to work with and to engage in, you know, these, you know, very productive and often very practical ways of intervening in uh, the issues of things like, um, you know, sheltering of animals, you know, reduction of the numbers of animals that are uh, uh, euthanized in shelters and giving them a second opportunity. How does that also then benefit the, the inmate themselves? And, you know, what we're starting to find is that these are some of the most productive and the most valuable therapeutic programs that can modify some of the key variables for uh, success once somebody is released from a correctional environment. So, for example, um, communication skills, social decoding, or what we might, you know, I, we would probably refer to that as, you know, can you read, you know, interpersonal communication? Do you have social skills? Um, those sorts of things. The ability to make friends, the ability to have uh, empathy for others are opportunities that uh, many of these programs were able to define and now establish that these are outcomes of the program that are improving um, the long-term success of individuals in the program. Well, it sounds like it also could be uh, revitalizing or rehashing the whole correctional facility system, Mm -hmm. that if we don't have to um, set aside as outsiders and outliers and uh, uh, criminals, then perhaps we can reform the whole correctional uh, society. So on that note, we're going to take a short break, so stick with us. Please do come back and... uh, with my guest, Philip Tedeschi, and the Denver Institute for Human-Animal Connection. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. 
are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. My guest, Philip Tedeschi, and you're listening to Our Wild World, which by now your understanding includes a whole lot more than just wildest, wilderness, and wildlife. We are a big part of that, and the transformation of our mental landscape through organizations and institutes like the Institute for, Denver, for Human-Animal Connection at Denver um, is, plays a big part of that. So I have to bring this in here. There's a huge trend now. Um, as we talk about the loss of mega charismatic megafauna like elephants, rhinos, that we are doing severe damage to our own wildlife, in especially the carnivores and the predators that we've all said are dynamic to the functioning of our ecosystem in the form of killing contests. And these killing contests are not about skilled hunting. They're not about communing with nature. They are about a male, uh, usually male, or family bonding uh, activity that is geared around wholesale slaughter of our uh, carnivores, coyotes, bobcats, mountain lions, uh, you name it. He who had bags the boat most and the biggest wins, and there's big cash prizes involved. But they're bringing along the kids. Um, so I don't have a problem with hunting for sustainability and for food and learning how to do this with skill. But since I'm talking to a clinical social worker and we're talking about abuse and cruelty, what does this kind of an activity, making fun out of it, do for children? And how does it, how could it or does it interrupt or have an effect on this human, the, the, the human family bond to, to nature and animals? Well, you know, it's a really interesting question and probably has many dimensions to it. But I think what, what we can say, and I feel like uh, and probably needs to be, you know, something that we're all aware of is that when we place um, human beings in contact with animals, it's no longer a neutral environment. It's not a, it's not a, a, a no-sum type of game. It has implications for what we're teaching. So if we looked at that question that you're asking, Ellie, the what is being taught to somebody, even an adult participating in those events? What are we teaching our society or culture or families and then specifically our children? You know, I think what we would find is that we're teaching at least the potential for an increased level of callousness and uh, and what we sometimes will refer to as unemotional response. So in other words, it becomes very difficult for children to know what to feel in those circumstances. When you're watching the harming and or killing or torture um, you know, or even teasing could fall into that category of a sentient participant in your immediate environment. The impact is that you that you, you the normative response would be to have some form of emotion attached to it. Many kids, what they will do when chronically exposed to some form of cruelty is they'll start get rid of their capacity to feel. They don't want to feel much. 
in and as a result, over a over a of a, of a lifetime, somebody who diminishes their capacity to feel becomes what we call unemotional and callous, and that becomes really the the building blocks for some pretty severe and serious problems for child, child psychological health and well-being. And especially when we look at, you know, children's usual, average, innate compassion and love for animals. The bunny at Easter, um, the, the petting zoo, we won't get into the effects of that. But um, And the disconnect between um, loving and petting that furry creature and that emotional connection to either having it on your plate um, disguised as something else or going out and wholesale slaughtering it. So mm-hmm. this, this disconnect of this emotional capacity to feel, um, I think that's sort of where we're, where we're stuck in right now over the last few decades. Um, and especially as we um, wholesale industrialize using wildlife and our environment in, in an exploit, exploitative, exploitative manner um, mm-hmm. as just a benchmark of wealth and status. So how, how does um, the programs that you work on, how do you go about re-engaging a mindset that's there? How do you go about reconnecting that um, emotional shut-off? Well, one of the things one of the things that we would start by doing is, you know, starting with the responsible adult, in most cases the parent, who's choosing to introduce a animal into their environment. So, you know, what would fall into this category would also be all of the um, elements of pet keeping, the animals that we have in our immediate environment. So there's many new trends occurring that you probably are aware of, Ellie, things like some new evidence that people are finding zoos more and more uncomfortable or problematic to visit. Or the circus, for example, you know, Barnum and Bailey that's choosing to now, um, you know, uh, you know, and elephants from performing. Yeah, distancing themselves from the use of those animals. And part of that, you know, is coming from a reaction based on their customers saying, this is no longer something we're enjoying or we're liking about it. When you start to teach people about uh, what we call belief in animal mind, which is really the study and understanding that animals have complex emotions and cognitions that in many ways we share so much with animals that as we start to learn more about them, we start to have inevitably a new understanding for what they might be experiencing in a situation where they're being harmed or treated cruelly. If we do understand that, then it's harder and harder to to distance ourselves from um, those conclusions that, you know, some behaviors are really quite unacceptable and really um, become detrimental for children in particular, but probably all people to accommodate. And I think that would include, um, you know, really a cross-cultural definition that cruelty is largely problematic for almost any culture, even though we may not the same way about dogs across the world or cattle or other animals. Um, you know, the reality is that when we're seeing a sentient a member of our community being diminished and harmed, that there are real psychological impacts um, in even just observing it, necessarily participating, but even just observing it. 
Absolutely, and we've done um, several programs over the past few months on uh, keeping animals in captivity. And, you know, the charismatic difference in our mindset between a dog and a lion, you know, and um, from a puppy mill to industrialized lion farming, you know, really on a on a simply purely unemotional basis, there's no difference. You know, we can uh, breed lions for the trophy hunters and we can breed puppies for the for the pet stores, but there is an emotional charismatic difference that we humans specifically are capable of recognizing. So um, I think a lot of what the work you're doing at the Institute helps in, enlarge the capacity for people to understand this connection. Um, so uh, we've got a little time here. I'm looking at your website, which is a fascinating website. And once again, I urge our listeners to visit it. It is uh, uh, du.edu slash human animal connection and uh, visit it. And you can learn more about Philip and his colleagues and the courses and the classes and the mission of the Institute. But you also have, um, as we were talking earlier, some major events, such as the fundraiser to bring awareness about uh, the Sheldrick Trust and the work they're doing. What are some of the other major events that are coming up? Well, our other big event this spring is actually happening at one of our uh, close partners, a program called Green Chimneys. And Green Chimneys is probably best known for their work with uh, children with psychiatric and emotional disturbance. And they have probably one of the world's most well-known programs that integrates children uh, with and a therapeutic or care farming and type of environment. And we're, we're co-hosting that conference entitled Growing Together, Kids, Animals, and Sowing the Seeds of Resilience. And really what we're looking at there is the new uh, recognition that contact with animals is one of the most powerful we have for, the, for what we call positive youth development. And uh, and it's so if you're you know interested, that's going to be a great conference. It's going to be held in at Brewster, New York, right on the grounds of Green Chimneys. Uh, then later this year, before we'll be, you go on, I, I, yeah. something came up because I was reading the title that kids, animals, and sowing the seeds of re- resiliency. How mm-hmm. does how are you defining resiliency in this context? Well, the way we define resilience is those contributions to a child's development that create good outcomes. And we define risks as those contributions to a child's development negative or problematic outcomes. So one of the ways that we now look at things like uh, intervention programs or even youth education programs is through a concept that is often um, defined as you know, being measured as uh, whether we can reduce those risks that create problematic outcomes and increase those resilient resiliency factors and asset factors. And, and guess what? One of the major resiliency factors we believe can be um, really identified is healthy, respectful relationships with other living individuals, including our animals, um, both wild and domestic is a resiliency factor that improves outcomes for children. I like that. I like using the word resiliency because it brings in the, uh, the whole concept of positive tension um, and tensile strength and the ability to handle 
uh, conflicts and handle interactions that could be risky and learn how to deal with it in a less confrontational way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and I, I think, Ellie, you know, your example of um, these kind of events where we're seeing cruelty, those are examples of things that are likely to really be risk contributors um, for children. We know that, you know, the development unemotional and callous traits places a child at a greater risk of development of of problem behavior in the future. And especially as we're moving into, let's say right now, a decade of tipping points and extinctions, the sixth mass extinction, the Anthropocene, um, our children are really critical because they are going to be our leaders in 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, long after you and I are gone. Mm -hmm. Earth will survive us, but, you know, we need to save humanity and uh, humanity's relationship to Earth and so that we have a place to live and so that we can continue on in a healthy relationship with each other. So I think a lot of the work that you're doing is just so cross-boundary and under the umbrella of just healthy relationships and well-being and redefining what we call the benchmark of health and wealth from one that is financial to the fatness of our wallet to that of who we are, what we are, and how we interact uh, not only with each other but with that which supports our very survival this earth a spaceship earth so um another thing i see that you do is not only do you offer events such as the fundraisers for uh non-students non uh uh students or involved in the uh the denver university or institute itself you go out and speak elsewhere yes yep we sure do you know we do a lot of presentations um you know, really almost all over the, all over the world. And um, in fact, I anticipate uh, being in Japan this summer, working with, at a conference uh, focused on the 20th anniversary of the, the earthquake that happened there. And that's also a resiliency based conference looking at preparedness for natural disasters and how to support human health and, and also uh, animal well-being. you know, the thing I wanted to mention that if people are really interested, if this is something that you want to learn more about, even if you're not coming to uh, a place like the University of Denver, a degree program, we do offer a program called Animals and Human Health. It can be taken from anywhere in the world. Uh, we have students now every continent in the world, I think with the exception of Antarctica. And um, you can find that information right on our website under program called Animals in Health. And just as a reminder, you can, our listeners, you can learn more about that program on the previous episodes with Philip and his uh, colleague, Jim Pyle, correct? And we discussed a lot of that, so you can find more information on how to get involved. So any, um, uh, we've got a couple minutes here, China, 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 any, anything going on there to help the youth and uh, blooming and burgeoning economic class, middle class of China to understand um, the connection to wildlife that lives elsewhere, that it is not necessarily a collectible or um, status thing? Well, you know, we, the, our main connection to uh, China is that we have a close collaboration with the Giant Panda Research Base and one of our faculty members, Sarah Bexel, 
Dr. Sarah Bexel is the director of humane education there. So we have students doing internships in uh, at Chengdu, uh, in Chengdu, China, at the at the Panda Base every summer. And the primary work that we're doing there are um, community-based um, summer camps for youth in China that uh, introduces them to the wonder of healthy relationships with animals. So it's a really a hands-on uh, humane education camp, and it's run by um, Sarah and the students that are from the University of Denver. That's fabulous. And you mentioned Sarah because she was the person I met at the Denver Ivory Crush that turned me on to you, but she mm-hmm. has yet to be a guest on the program. So um, it would be wonderful good. to talk about that because it's very much on our horizon as China makes inroads across the world um, and has money to burn, so to speak, because they are uh, a business-oriented and wealthy nation. And um, it would be great to learn a lot more about what is going on with pandas. They've sort of fallen off the radar as we look at rhinos and elephants and lions and tigers and bears oh my so it would be great to um put a a a little butterfly in sarah's ear and uh, i would love to have her as a guest so she would be a great guest and and you know i it's important for us to understand that you know our most consumptive societies are including the united states are are very important um participants in the solution so we want to be um we want to be working with you know kind of our own communities and i think sarah would be a great guest she would she could tell you all about that i would love that and as you just said we are we are leaders and it would be great if the u.s could once again become a leader in a a transformative movement uh, across the globe it would be wonderful to see our own population becoming reconnected with each other and the world and unfortunately we are out of time philip you're always fascinating to talk to thank you so much well thank you thanks for having me and um Please feel free to get to know our institute. We'll look forward to our our next chance to talk with you, Ellie. Absolutely. So in the meantime, step out. Go see our, our, your wild world. This is Ellie Weiss. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.